gulls scream as they circle the stony beach at Dover on England's southeast coast. Waves drag and rattle the pebbles, and a stiff autumn breeze whistles through the salt spray. At the huge castle perched on the iconic white cliffs, military sentries call to one another. Down here on the beach, there's a more raucous sound, the coarse banter of a gang of Kentish fishermen. These fishermen are hard at work dragging their boat up the sands, heaving it foot by foot until it's high on the beach. It's tough graft. They've been out at sea for hours, wet through and shivering cold. Once they've got the boat home and dry, though, they see something that makes them stop and stare in astonishment. A little way down the beach, they spot one of their mates. He's stripped off his wet weather gear and he's naked from the waist up. Thinking he's quite the Lothario, he's trying to chat someone up. His companion is a sad-looking lady in a long and very pretty green dress. Needless to say, she looks out of place on the beach. The fishermen can't hear what their mate is saying, but they can tell from the body language exactly what's going on. He's muscled in on this woman during her walk. Now he seems to be demonstrating, far too forcefully, how he might cheer her up. He's making an unwelcome, unwanted nuisance of himself. But he's about to get his comeuppance. To explain, it's probably best if I leave the next bit to a chronicler of the time. Suddenly pulling at the gown, the fisherman plunged unblushingly in, only to be confronted with irrefutable evidence that this woman was a man. The fisherman, lacking our more sophisticated 21st century understanding of gender, is shocked. Jumping back and hearing his mate's catcalls, he demands they come over to help him work out what's going on. When they arrive, they tell him what he's been too pig-headed to work out for himself. Only, it's not what you might be thinking. Our fisherman hasn't just got his wires crossed while assaulting an innocent member of the public. He's been trying to get lucky with William Longchamp, Chancellor and Justicia of England. This is the man who runs England's government for King Richard the Lionheart. The man who's been entrusted with holding the kingdom together while Richard has been off on the Third Crusade, battling Saladin for control of Jerusalem. He's also the Right Reverend Bishop of Ely. It doesn't get much more awkward than this. So here's the big and obvious question. What in the name of everything holy is the Bishop of Ely doing wearing a long green dress on Dover Beach? The short answer, he's on the run. It's October 1191 and Longchamp has been hounded out of office by a coalition of bishops and barons whipped into a frenzy of hatred against him by two highly unscrupulous individuals. He's trying to find a boat so he can get out of the country before they throw him in jail. The men leading the campaign against him are dangerous. 
They're even more closely connected to the absent king than he is. One is Richard's half-brother, Geoffrey Plantagenet, illegitimate son of old Henry II and now Archbishop of York. The other is Richard's full brother, John. The youngest of the legitimate Plantagenets is by far the most devious, amoral, conniving, slippery and feckless man in the entire medieval world. And those are just his good points. Richard knew he was taking a big risk leaving John and Geoffrey at large while he went off on crusade. He was right. The longer he's away, the more trouble John in particular is going to cause. So it's time to take a mini break from crusading to catch up on what was going on back in England during Richard's absence. Because William Longchamp being chased down the beach by a randy fisherman is no joke. It's the start of a crisis that might spell the end for the entire Plantagenet Empire. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. Season 2 of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 6. Brothers Behaving Badly. Okay, confession time. That story I just told you about William Longchamp and the fisherman might be a bit exaggerated. It may even be completely made up. Not, I should say, by me. It comes from an ostensibly upstanding source, a chronicle written by a bishop called Hugh Nonon. What's more, the way Hugh tells it is actually so explicit and scandalous that I've toned it down. But here's the thing about old Hugh. He has a poison pen, and he's fully mobbed up with Richard's young brother, John. So at times, his chronicle is hardcore, pro-John propaganda. What's more, Hugh is reputed to be one of the most appallingly corrupt and deviant churchmen of his age, who on his deathbed will confess to such a long list of sins that no priest can be found to absolve him. They say you can judge a man by the friends he keeps, so I guess it's no surprise that Hugh and John get along. John's personality is, of course, no secret to anyone who knows him. This is the man who turned a diplomatic visit to Ireland into an all-out war and who betrayed his father so cruelly that he sent the old man to his grave. That's why, as you might remember from episode 2, when Richard left England to go on the Third Crusade, he took special measures to try and keep John under control while he was away. He awarded John vast tracts of land, the county of Mortain in Normandy and six counties in England making him, at a stroke, the richest nobleman in England. He also married him to a wealthy heiress. Richard and John's father nicknamed John Lackland when he was a kid, 
In a way, Richard is probably trying to show John he's making up for that. At least on the surface. With the carrot, however, came the stick. John was given lots of land, but Richard commanded him to stay out of England for three years. To stop John acting like a king-in-waiting, Richard also decreed that the official heir to the throne was a four-year-old called Arthur of Brittany. It's not a totally watertight arrangement. And it was weakened considerably when Eleanor of Aquitaine had a pang of maternal guilt as the Crusader army was leaving and successfully convinced Richard to reverse his instruction for John's exile. Still, it's better than nothing. John has property and money to play with. Richard's loyal, ultra-competent Norman bureaucrat Longchamp was parachuted in to run the government and told he could call on other Plantagenet loyalists like the self-styled greatest knight William Marshall if he needed a hand. Then Richard went off on crusade to do his bit to save the world. So, what happens next? Well, John happens next. He takes one look at Longchamp and decides he's going to have some fun with him. Not that Longchamp is a difficult target. He's fine at the job of running a country, but he has a way about him that puts people's backs up. He's from a lowly background in Normandy, and the trappings of power in England are irresistible to him. In that regard, he's not a million miles away from our old friend from season one, Thomas Beckett. Like Beckett, Longchamp loves fine costumes and grand processions and having lots of attendants at his beck and call. He treats people high-handedly and makes enemies easily. Since the job of ruling England involves plenty of demanding money with menaces, he finds making friends difficult. Unlike Beckett, Longchamp also looks a bit weird sort of short, hairy and ungainly, and has a foreign accent, which is a gift to anyone who wants to have a go at him. And John very much wants to have a go. Richard is barely over the horizon when John saunters into England and sets himself up as a sort of king-in-waiting, with a big court, lots of troops following him around, and a sympathetic ear available to anyone who feels hacked off with Longchamp. You might wonder at this point why John's mum, Eleanor, doesn't give her youngest lad a good clip round the ear. But remember, at the start of the crusade, in 1190, Eleanor is nowhere near England. She's off trekking over the mountains, bringing Richard's bride-to-be, Berengaria, to find him in Sicily. It's only when she gets to Sicily, in March 1191, that she and Richard hear from messengers sent by Longchamp telling them what John has been up to. Eleanor's troubled enough to race back after just three days. Meanwhile, Richard sends back another trusted advisor, the Bishop of Beauvais, to knock heads together and take control of the government himself if needs be. Managing a country by remote control from the other side of Europe isn't easy, 
Yet deep down, Richard probably recognises that John is only doing what he might do in the same situation. After all, the German Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, has already died on his way to the Third Crusade, drowned in a river. If something like that happens to Richard, John's actions will look strategic or even sensible, not treacherous. The Plantagenet Empire might even benefit from a smooth transition of power. So Richard can't be too harsh on his brother, yet. He just has to hope that John isn't going to go beyond posturing and undermining his officials. That's a lot of trust to place in a man as addicted to causing trouble as John. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. In September 1191, John has been prancing around the Plantagenet Kingdom of England, acting like a king-in-waiting for nearly a year. He's got his feet right under the table, and he's not averse to telling people Richard probably isn't coming home. Furthermore, his henchmen, like head propagandist Hugh Nonon, are spreading the most disgraceful and scandalous stories about poor old William Longchamp. What tips this over from drama into crisis is the arrival of John's half-brother, Archbishop Geoffrey. Geoffrey, like John, was barred from England for three years by the king. Unlike John, 
his ban wasn't rescinded by Eleanor. Geoffrey doesn't have a sniff of the throne. Remember that Richard and Eleanor made him take the priesthood and gave him the Archbishopric of York specifically so he wouldn't get any funny ideas in that direction. He is, however, a troublemaker. He wielded plenty of power during old Henry II's reign, and like John, he thinks he ought to have a stake in running the country while Richard is away. He comes to England in September 1191, saying he wants to lay his hands on the profits of his archbishop's office. But that's not fooling Longchamp. As soon as Geoffrey lands in Dover, he hears that he's not welcome. He's told that if he doesn't turn around and beat it, he'll be arrested by the constable of Dover Castle, who just so happens to be Longchamp's brother. Geoffrey doesn't fancy that, but he's not leaving either. So he heads to one of Dover's monasteries and takes refuge. Longchamp then makes a big tactical error. Instead of leaving Geoffrey there to stew, he sends in the guards to drag him out, kicking and screaming. They do the job to the letter. Government heavies go into the holy building, track Geoffrey down, and manhandle him out. One man on each limb, his head banging on the ground. It's very undignified. And it reminds people of something that happened 21 years ago, also in a holy place in Kent. Any guesses? That's right, the murder of Thomas Beckett at Canterbury Cathedral. And we all know how badly that went down. Unlike Beckett, Geoffrey survives his ordeal, but the reputational damage to Longchamp is still done. The backlash is so vicious that he now fears for his safety. And that's how we get to where we began this episode. On Dover Beach, with Longchamp trying to flee for safety. Possibly being molested by a mackerel chaser while he's wearing a ball gown. Anyway, by the end of October 1191, Longchamp has finally done a runner from England. John was hoping that would mean he was put in charge. But it doesn't. The sensible bishop Richard sent back from Sicily when he first heard things were going wrong steps up and takes charge instead. That sends John into a rage. Such a rage, in fact, that he starts contemplating stupid stuff. I mean, really stupid stuff. As luck would have it, his window for doing stupid stuff has just been thrown wide open. By Christmas 1191, the French king Philip Augustus has returned from the Third Crusade, with a bad taste in his mouth and a strong desire in his heart to harm Richard by any means possible. Philip is regularly browbeaten by Richard, but he's certainly no mug. And when he gets back to Europe and sees England in turmoil 
and John looking for new ways to make himself the boss, Philip starts plotting. He invites John to come to Normandy, where the rumours are that he's going to offer him a pact. He's going to propose that he recognises John as Lord of all the Plantagenet lands in France, that's everything except England basically, if he agrees to ditch the wealthy heiress Richard married him to and take up with Richard's spurned fiancée, Philip's sister Alice, instead. John is packing his stuff ready to go when the one person who has the character and good sense to stop him steps in. Eleanor. She's been keeping an eye on the trouble in England from across the channel, but now she sees what Philip is planning. If John signs up to this pact, then he'll be accepting Philip as supreme lord to most of the Plantagenet Empire. It'll be a disastrous weakening of everything the family stands for. She races across the channel and reads John the Riot Act. He backs down. Philip is thwarted for now. Still, the writing is on the wall. It's been nearly two years since the Third Crusade set off, and the Plantagenet Empire needs its king back. Messengers head out to the Holy Land, letting Richard know that if there's any way for him to come home, he should do it. Otherwise John and Philip Augustus might just see to it that there's no home to come back to. By the time the messages reach Richard, he's just about ready. He's fought Saladin at Acre, Asuf and Jaffa. He's sick and he's tired. In the autumn of 1192, he decides that the time is right to get home, sort out his brother and remind Philip who's boss. He takes a ship heading back to England, hoping to arrive by the new year. But he's in for a nasty shock. Things are going to be about as far away from plain sailing as he could ever have imagined. But that's for next time on This Is History. Before you go, just a reminder that the Plantagenet drama doesn't end here. If you get on This Is History Plus, then you'll discover that every Tuesday when episodes drop, I also release an extra episode full of weird, wonderful and sometimes completely random stuff we don't have time for in the main story. What's more, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.